I want to start by thinking about what makes a good rescue story. Now, who, who do you need? What key characters do you need in a rescue story? Uh, children, the start of the first uh, Star Wars film, some of you will be all over. Some of you will be desperate to watch it, haven't yet watched it. But it is a great rescue story, not giving uh, too many uh, spoilers away. But Princess Leia has been captured uh, by an Imperial Star Destroyer uh, that is uh, led by Darth Vader. And Princess Leia is desperately bothered by the evil uh, of the world. She's desperately bothered by the plight of her people. And so she puts out a transmission. She cries out for a rescuer uh, through uh, R2-D2, her robot. And she cries out to the valiant Jedi Knights, in particular one of them. And uh, the end of the message goes like this. Help me, Obi-Wan Kenobi. You are my only hope. And uh, in, in the, the rest of the series is worked out by uh, these Jedi warriors uh, coming to see if they can rescue uh, the people from the evil empire. I haven't got a clue what I'm talking about. That's my fault uh, and not yours. Um, but we've all got some sort of idea of what a good rescue story uh, should be like. Uh, people desperate to be saved, looking for a noble rescuer. And that idea is exactly not what we get in Judges 14 to 15. We'll read it out in a second, but before we read it out, let's just remind ourselves about the context of this story. So we've got the book of Judges, and there are many uh, judges, rescuers of God's people who get in a total mess. And uh, towards the end of Judges, we get Samson, who is the most famous judge of the Bible. He gets four whole chapters. He gets significantly a birth narrative, and we also hear about his death as well. And one of the things we learn about Samson is that he's to be a Nazarite. That is someone who's specially set apart for God's purposes. And in particular, two, there are sort of a number of things that he had to do, but two of them I just want to draw our attention to that we heard about last week. One of them is he shouldn't drink any alcohol or even eat a grape. And that's not for him. The second thing he shouldn't do is even go near a dead body. Now, we're going to read um, this, uh, these two chapters, quite a long story, but I want us to read the whole thing. I'll read it quite quickly. So Judges 14 to 15. And as I read, I want you to look out for three uh, characters. Uh, firstly, a weak deliverer. Secondly, a lethargic nation. And thirdly, the bothered God. A weak deliverer, a lethargic nation, and the bothered God. So Judges chapter 14, verse 1. Samson went down to Timnah, and at Timnah he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. Then he came up and told his father and mother, I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines at Timnah. Now get her for me as my wife. But his father and mother said to him, Is there not a woman among the daughters of your relatives, or among all our people, that you must go to take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? But Samson said to his father, Get her for me, for she is right in my eyes." His father and mother did not know that this was from the Lord, for he was looking for he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. At that time, the Philistines ruled over Israel. Then Samson went down with his father and mother to Timnah, and they came to the vineyards of Timnah. And behold, a young lion came towards him, roaring. Then the spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and although he had nothing in his hand, he tore the lion in pieces as one tears a young goat. But he did not tell his father or mother what he had done. Then he went down and talked with the woman, and she was right in Samson's eyes. After some days he returned to take her, and he turned aside to see the carcass of the lion, and behold, there was a swarm of bees in the body of the lion, and honey. 
He scraped it out into his hands and went on, eating as he went. And he came to his father and mother and gave some to them, and they ate. But he did not tell them that he had scraped the honey from the carcass of the lion. His father went down to the woman, and, and Samson prepared a feast there. For so the young men used to do. As soon as the people saw him, they brought, th- they brought 30 companions to be with him. And Samson said to them, let me now put a riddle to you. If you can tell me what it is within the seven days of the feast and find it out, then I will give you 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothes. But if you cannot tell me what it is, then you shall give me 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothes. And they said to him, put your, uh, put your riddle that we may hear it. And he said to them, out the eater came something to eat. Out of the strong came something sweet. And in three days they could not solve the riddle. On the fourth day, they said to Samson's wife, entice your husband to tell us what the riddle is, lest we burn you and your father's house with fire. Have you invited us here to impoverish us? And Samson's wife wept over him and said, you only hate me. You do not love me. You've put a riddle to my people and you have not told me what it is. And he said to her, behold, I have not told my father nor my mother. And shall I tell you? She wept before him for the seven days that their feast lasted. And on the seventh day, he told her because she pressed him hard. Then she told the riddle to her people. And the men of the city said to him on the seventh day before the sun went down, what is sweeter than honey? What is stronger than a lion? And he said to them, if you had not plowed with my heifer, you would not have found out my riddle. And the spirit of the Lord rushed upon him. And he went down to Ashkelon and struck down 30 men of the town and took their spoil and gave the garments to those who would explain the riddle. In hot anger, he went back to his father's house. And Samson's wife was given to his companion, who had been his best man. After some days, at the time of the wheat harvest, Samson went to visit his wife with a young goat, and he said, I will go in to my wife in the chamber. But his father would not allow him to go in. And her father said, I really thought you you utterly hated her, so I gave it to your companion. Is not her younger sister more beautiful than she is? Please take her instead. And Samson said to them, This time I shall be innocent in regard to the Philistines when I do them harm. So Samson went and caught 300 foxes and took torches and he turned them tail to tail and put a torch between each pair of tails. And when he had set fire to the torches, he let the foxes go into the standing corn of the Philistines and set fire to the stacked grain and the standing corns as well as the olive orchards. Then the Philistines said, what, who has done this? And, and they said, Samson, the son-in-law of the Timnite, because he has taken his wife and has given her to his companion. And the Philistines came up and burned her and her father with fire. And Sam said to them, is this is what you do? I swear I'll be avenged on you. And after that, I will quit. And he struck them hip and thigh with a great blow. And he went down and stayed in the cleft of the rock at Etam. Then the Philistines came up and encamped in Judah and made a raid on Lehi. And the men of Judah said, why have you come up against us? They said, we've come up to bind Samson, to do him as he did to us. Then 3,000 men of Judah went down to the cleft of the rock of Etam and said to Samson, do you not know that the Philistines are rulers over us? What then is this that you have done to us? And he said to them, as they did to me, so I've done to them. And they said to him, we have come down to bind you, that we may give you into the hands of the Philistines. And Samson said to them, swear to me that you will not attack me yourselves. They said to him, no, we will, not, we will only bind you and give you into their hands. We will surely not kill you. So they bound him with two new ropes and brought him 
uh, brought him up from the rock. And when he came to Lehi, the Philistines came shouting to meet him. Then the spirit of the Lord rushed upon him and the ropes were caught on his arms. The ropes, were on his, the ropes that were on his arms became as flax that has caught fire and his bonds melted off his hands. And he found a fresh jaw, jawbone of donkey and put out his hand and took it. And with it, he struck 1,000 men. And Samson said, with a jawbone of a donkey, heaps upon heaps, with a jawbone of a donkey, I've struck down 1,000 men. As soon as he had finished speaking, he threw away the jawbone out of his hand. And that place was called Ramath-Lehi. And he was very thirsty. And he called upon the Lord and said, you have granted this great salvation by the hand of your servant. And shall I now die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised? And God split open the hollow place, that is, at Lehi, and water came out from it. And when he drank, his spirit turned and he revived. Therefore, the name of it was called En-Hakori. It is at Lehi to this day. And he judged Israel in the days of the Philistines for 20 years. Well, listen, it's a long reading. So what I'm going to do is just recap the key scenes uh, just to get us the main point. It's easy to to lose track of where we are in the first reading. So just some key scenes. Firstly, scene one, finding a wife, uh, chapter 14, one to four. Uh, We meet the grown up Samson and he's seen a woman he wants to marry. She's a Philistine. She's a non-Israelite. And his parents, he he gets his parents to go to get her for him. That's a bit of a surprise to his parents. Uh, Shouldn't a deliverer of God's people be marrying a worshipper of God? But after a brief discussion, they do. Uh, Scene two, uh, uh, Samson discovers his strength. Samson's parents go down to Timnah. Uh, it's about 20 miles away from Jerusalem, so it's sort of the heart of Israel, but where the Philistines are living. And on his way, a lion attacks him. And the poor lion, he clearly makes an error of judgment. He attacks the only person who is filled with the spirit of the Lord. And of course, it's easy work for Samson. The Lord has given him great strength to kill a lion. And they continue to go on. The wedding negotiations seem to go well. And on the return trip, Samson comes across the dead lion again, this time full of honey. So he scrapes it from the dead carpus, uh, carcass, breaching his Nazarite vow. Did you pick that up? He shouldn't go near a dead carcass, but he does. And he gives the honey to his parents. And by the end of scene two, Samson realises he has been blessed with supernatural strength, which is ideal for a deliverer of God's people. Then in scene three, we get the wedding banquet it, itself, uh, 14, 10 to 20. Samson prepares a feast. It's a drinking feast. Again, Nazarite alert. What's going on in there? Should he be drinking? It's now, it's, it's unavoidable. This feast would have included alcohol, which is fine if you're an Israelite, but not if you are a special Nazarite set apart from the Lord. But he's given 30 Philistine men to attend him. And possibly in light of his victory over the lion, he's getting a bit uh, cocksure, a bit, a bit confident. And so he gets out a riddle. He loves a riddle. He wants to show how clever he is. If they can work out the riddle, he'll buy them each a piece of clothing. But if they can't, 30 of them will have to get him a piece of clothing. He's got a wardrobe for life. Now, his riddle is basically unanswerable, except to his fiancée, who lures it out of him for fear of her life. So he, he gives her the answer, and of course she then goes and tells the Philistines. Samuel, uh, Samson, I beg your pardon, has been outsmarted, and he's furious. But he stays true to his word. 
So we get, he does get outfits for these 30 Philistine companions, but from another 30 Philistines in Ashkelon, another uh, Philistine place. And, and he strikes them down. And perhaps surprisingly, he does this through the spirit of the Lord who empowers him to do so. Chapter 15, it's like one escalation after another. Things just get tenser and tenser and t- tenser. Uh, Samson goes back to his bride. He's he's calmed down. He goes back to consummate his marriage. They've only been engaged so far. But disastrously, uh, his potential father-in-law has actually given his potential wife away to someone else. He didn't think that Samson was coming back. So again, Samson is totally furious. He gets foxes, ties them together, lights their tails and destroys the wheat harvest. The Philistines in turn come back to take revenge. They destroy what who, the man who would have been his father-in-law and the woman who would have been his wife. So Samson brings justice to his killers by killing them. It's constant back and forth, which leads to a final scene, a final deliverance. Well, until uh, the next chapter uh, next week, the final chapter in Samson's life. The Philistines won't let Samson have the final say. So they raid into Israel um, the Israelites who are subservient to their Philistine overlords. Now, the, the Isra- those Israelites just want a peaceful life. So they give their own countrymen, their own deliverer back over to their enemies. And one final time in this story, the spirit of the Lord comes upon Samson. He breaks the ropes from his hands, the fresh ropes, as if they're burned flax, burn reeds. It's so easy. He grabs another dead animal. Again, uh, Nazarite, what's he doing? But he grabs another dead animal and he strikes down a thousand of these Philistines. Extraordinary story. And it's, he's empowered by the spirit of the Lord and he begins to deliver Israel. So quite a long story. Now, I suspect if you were looking out for the key characters, you saw the weak deliverer, particularly in the way I've retold it. The weak deliverer is quite obvious. The lethargic nation and the bothered God may be a little bit harder to see. But overall, what's the point of this story? What is the main thing this story teaches us? I think it's this. The Lord cares more about the salvation of his people than we do. I say that again, the Lord cares more about the salvation of his people than we do. Let's start having a look at Samson, the weak deliverer. Sam, he's the hero of this story in many ways, but he's the hero who's not a hero. In many ways, he is just an example of what not to do. And we see that at the very start of the story. Verse, chapter 14, verse 2, turn back to there. He wants to marry a Philistine. Now, throughout the Old Testament and New, believers are not married, meant to marry people outside of the people of God. So Samson, Samson off to a pretty bad start. Now, his parents are probably uh, the best people in this whole story. They are pretty switched on. Do you remember last week they've been told by the angel of the Lord that Samson is going to be Israel's deliverer? So say verse three, you know, are you sure? Are you sure you want to marry a, a non-Israelite? So there's a tension there because they know he should be sort of an example in many ways, but maybe maybe things are different from him. They say, Are you sure? Uh, but it doesn't doesn't bother Samson at all. Verse three, he's very stubborn. And in what we see is his second failing. He doesn't honour his father and mother. He's disrespectful uh, to them. He just says in verse three, get her for me. It's not a great way to, to speak to your parents, is it? Get her for me. I want her now. And then the final words, he says explanatory to that, show another one of his failings. Do you see that? He says he wants her because she is right in my eyes. 
Now, the, that phrase should be ringing all sorts of alarm bells. If you know the book of Judges or if you know the scriptures more generally, it, that phrase comes up uh, four times at the end of Judges, uh, doing what's right in your own eyes. And it's a wider theme of scripture as well. Christians, we are people who, who are meant to live by what we hear, not by what we see. Live by faith and not by sight. Children, we often say a way to explain sin is just respelling S-I-N, S, shove off God, I, I'm in charge, and no to your rule. And that's effectively uh, what Samson is saying. He, he's living not by what God has said in his word, by what he wants to do, what's pleasing to his eyes. Now, Samson's failings continue to pile up. He's a Nazarite, someone who's been set apart for service for the Lord. And a part of that was not drinking wine or eating grapes or going near a dead body. But again, in this story, we see the author is really keen to show us how he breaks these a number of times. So verse five, just before he meets uh, the lion, he's walking through the vineyard. Should a, should a Nazarite be walking through a vineyard? OK, it's not exactly breaching it, but hinting of it. Uh, verse eight, he gets this, this honey. He shouldn't be going near a dead carcass, but he not needs to go near. He eats from this dead carcass. And the way verse 8 and 9 are written, it sort of echoes of the Garden of Eden. He sees something, he takes it, he, te- he eats it, and then he gives it to others. When I hear exactly what Eve does in the garden, it's a warning sign to us. Verse 10, there's a feast. He goes about this wedding feast. The sort of feast that's talked about here would have been a drinking feast. That's the, the sort of feast that's meant. It's not a sort of innocent, you know, let's just have a nice, you know, roast chicken together. It's a drinking feast. That's what's going on here. Again, we know Samson and Nazarite, not what he should be doing. And then again, from these Nazarite vows, did you see in chapter 15, he picks up the, the, uh, the jawbone of the dead donkey, a fresh dead carcass, should be nowhere near it. But he picks it up as his weapon of choice. It's as if the author, the author is going out to say, Samson, you're meant to be a Nazarite. Do you not care about that? Do you not care that you're to be used by God? It's as if he is just not bothered. His failings continue. Verse 12, back to 14, verse 12. He makes the bet through this riddle. Uh, children, do you know any riddles? Do you like doing riddles to people? I love riddles because if someone can't answer them, you, you think you're so clever, don't you? And that's what Samson, he's, he's very proud. He thinks he's so clever. He makes a bet. Again, we make bets with people. It's a sign of our confidence, sign of our pride. We want to take advantage of our position over other people. And then finally, chapter 14, verse 17, we see his foolishness with women. He can't avoid pressing the self-destruct button. We'll see more of that uh, next week. So Samson is Israel's judge and deliverer. But you know how weak he is. He is he is not the sort of person you would expect to rescue Israel. So the question is, what do we do with him? What do we do with the fact that Samson is in our Bibles? Well, it's certainly not that his weaknesses don't matter. Samson caused himself so much trouble through his weaknesses. His weaknesses get him in, into trouble. He shows the effects of foolishness and sin. Uh, children, it's wonderful, isn't it, when our parents forgive us uh, and, and that relationship is restored. But their forgiveness very often doesn't undo the effects of what we have done when we're unkind to brothers and sisters and when we've made a mess of things. Their forgiveness is wonderful, uh, but still has consequences, uh, doesn't it, when we, when we mess up. So it's not that his weaknesses don't matter. And the point of this story is not that Samson is actually an unbeliever either. 
Now we know this from the end of the story. Did you see he prayed at the end of chapter 15? Again, next week in chapter 16, we'll see his believer. And he's even in Hebrews 11 as an example of someone who had faith, who lived uh, by faith. It's just that he's a very foolish and immature believer, particularly in these chapters. Now, it's been said about Samson uh, many times before, and I think it's really helpful. uh, Giftedness does not equal godliness. Giftedness does not equal godliness. So he's anointed uh, by the Spirit. The Spirit of the Lord comes upon him to do wonderful things. And it's possible, therefore, for, for anyone to be blessed by God in abilities, in circumstances, in opportunities, in finances, in friendships. But those things in themselves, they never commend us. They're no validation of our walk with the Lord. The gifts of the Spirit do not equal fruits of the Spirit. So it's a warning to us. And yet at the same time, it is remarkable how God can use even an ungodly leader, an immature believer, like Samson, in the purposes of saving his people. In many ways, it is just a total mystery why God chooses to do that, isn't it? Why would he use people like Samson uh, to deliver his people? Many of us will probably have experiences of seeing the Lord use ungodly people for his purposes. In fact, you see that across church history. The deeper you look at the heroes that we're often told about church history, the deeper you look at their lives, you can see significant, significant flaws, not just weaknesses, but uh, areas of ungodliness. And whilst it's a mystery, it's also a cause in many ways for thanks, not thanks for ungodliness. But if God can use ungodly leaders for his purposes, it means that none of us are ultimately ruled out for being useful to God for our past failings or even our present failings. So Samson, uh, the weak deliverer. Secondly, we've got Israel, the lethargic nation. Now, did you notice uh, that no one in this story is bothered by the fact that the Philistines are ruling over Israel? No one is bothered. Possibly Samson's parents, but it doesn't seem like anyone else is bothered. You might remember that there's a pattern that goes on in Judges. So there's six major Judges um, in uh, the book of Judges. And there's a pattern. The pattern goes like this. Israel sins. And then God is angry and he sends oppressors uh, to oppress his people. Then in their misery, they cry out to the Lord. The Lord then sends a deliverer and then there is peace for a time. That is the pattern in uh, Judges. Now, it's not always followed in that way. And here there's an exception to that story. There is no crying out for a deliverer in this story. They're just not bothered by the fact that they are ruled over by an ungodly, idol-worshipping nation. Now, most of the story is set in a town called Timnah. Again, it's uh, near Jerusalem. It's in Israel, but it's effectively a Philistine town. They're worshippers of Dagon. And it's the people of Israel and the people of Philistine, uh, of Philistia, are living cheek by jowl in perfect harmony. Now, much of our modern sensibilities, oh, multiculturalism. Great, that's a wonderful thing. But I want to say, hold on a second, not so quickly. Now, it is true in the new covenant as the church, we are to live among the nations, 
among unbelievers. We're not to uh, isolate away from them in communities completely separate from them. But still, we're called to be a holy, distinct, uh, godly people, even who are willing to be hated by those who we live amongst, um, f- uh, hated for the, for the ways in which we live for the Lord. Now, in the Old Covenant, that principle was also true, but rather than being sort of individuals scattered amongst the nations, it was one nation was to be holy. They all meant to live it, Israel, and they were meant to be distinct as a country from the other countries around them. But that's not what we get here at all. See, there's absolutely no tension between Israel, those who worship the true and living God, and the Philistines, the idol worshippers, those who worship Dagon. Now, we've seen the intermarriage or the potential intermarriage didn't quite happen between Samson and the Timnite. But again, we see this sort of this uh, coziness uh, between the Israelites and the Philistines in chapter 15. So do you remember the the Philistines uh, uh, come and they're going to they're coming after Samson. And what do the Israelites say? They say, no, go away. He is our leader. We'll protect him. Exact opposite. They come to Samson and they say, don't you know that the Philistines are rulers over us? What then is this that you have done to us? Again, they're totally indifferent that they are ruled over and subservient to another religion. Their only desire is they just don't want any trouble. They'll do anything for the peaceful, quiet life. If they can just order a takeaway, watch Netflix, they don't really care about anything else. We just want peace rather than faithfulness. Now, I think uh, Judges chapter 14 and 15 and the comfort of God's people uh, amongst ungodliness is uh, really challenging. As I read this, it made me feel very uncomfortable. I think there's a sense in which, you know, Judges 14 and 15 is meant to be a mirror to us. And it's God asking us the question. It's saying, could this be you? church could this be you are you living amongst the nation amongst the nation's unbelievers in the same way of course there are differences between israel and the nations and how the church should live in the world um but i wonder if we do it all the time let me give an example i guess it's the easiest example to go to but this idea of tolerance the value of tolerance now of course tolerance can be very good can't it and it all depends on what you mean by that term doesn't it tolerance can be good but we mustn't confuse it with the fact that we should believe strongly that God does care who we sleep with. God does care that a man is a man and a woman is a woman. God does care that the only way to be right with him is through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We should feel tension uh, with the values of the world around us. It shouldn't be honest and say, oh, yeah, we basically believe the same. That shouldn't be it at all. It's, we're basically totally different. Yes, yeah, sometimes uh, we, we have things in common, but that should be the tendency, tension rather than things in common. It's not say that we don't absolutely love people. We don't seek to be kind, to do good to all around us. But there is a difference. And I guess the tension for us is we just want peace at any cost, don't we? We very often just want the peaceful, quiet life. Uh, children, we, one of the things we, we want the most, isn't it, in the play, we just want to be friends with everyone. Adults, it's the same for us as well, isn't it? We just love people's approval. We do anything for the peaceful, quiet life. I read a very challenging line this week uh, with respect to this story. This is what uh, the line said. There is no such thing as harmonious coexistence 
between the church and the world. For where there is no conflict, it is because the world has taken over. Ouch. Now, we might want to nuance that slightly. We want to caveat that statement. I think it could do with some nuancing and caveating and some extra explaining for lack of understanding. But I think there's a large dollop of truth in that statement. And maybe you don't like it at all. Let me try another one from a different author. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And we probably want to nuance that as well, don't we? We want to caveat that. It doesn't really sound as harsh what it means. But of course, it's the words of the Holy Spirit. And we've got to understand scripture rightly. But can you see the line of scripture? There should be a tension between us and the world. It's not like we're going to make, try and make enemies with the world, but there will be some hostility. So Israel, an indifferent nation, it makes this passage uh, very challenging, I think, to us. But if you're feeling like, actually, I, I would have fitted in as a good citizen in this indifferent nation, if you're feeling that uncomfortably, well, our last point, I think, will be a wonderful tonic to you. It will really refresh your soul. Because although uh, Samson is a weak deliverer and Israel is an indifferent nation, there is one person totally in this passage who really concerned, is concerned for his people, and that's the Lord, the bothered God. The Lord is actually the main character in this story. And we don't see him mentioned uh, too many times, but once we're attuned to the fact this story, 14 and 15, is all about God, he is the hero of this story, we see his uh, fingerprints uh, all over it. We see the Lord's passion for his people actually right at the start of the story. So please turn back to me to chapter 14, verse 4. So Samson, I want that woman. She's an unbeliever, but she's right in my eyes. His parents are a bit concerned. Uh, But look at the comments, the author's comments. 14.4, the Lord was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. The Lord was looking for something. He was desiring something. What did he seek? What did he desire? An opportunity to rescue his people. You see, his people weren't bothered about their lethargy, about their half-heartedness, but the Lord was, and he wanted to rescue them from it. That's what he wanted for his people. Although Samson wasn't bothered, although Israel wasn't bothered, the Lord Almighty was bothered by his people's captivity. And children, let me ask you, what do you care about? What, What are you really passionate for? Maybe sometimes it's something quite trivial. You just want to watch a bit of TV. Maybe you just want some sweets. Maybe it's friends, you're passionate about your friends or even your family. Well, God is passionate about something. He is passionate about rescuing his undeserving people. He's passionate about rescuing uh, an indifferent people, a lethargic people, a hard-hearted people. Isn't that a wonderful truth? That the Lord wants to rescue you from your misery more than you do. You see, despite Samson's failings and Israel's indifference, God was at work. Three times in this passage, we see God explicitly at work. The spirit of the Lord. Look, 14 verse 6. The spirit of the Lord rushes upon Samson to take out the lion who wanted to take out Samson. 14 verse 19. The spirit of the Lord rushed upon Samson to take out the Philistines at Ashkelon. 15 verse 14. The spirit of the Lord rushed upon Samson to defeat the Philistines who themselves had militarily defeated the Israelites. Why? Why? Because the Lord is bothered by the fate of his people. It's a wonderful truth, isn't it? The Lord is more bothered about our salvation than we are. 
he helps us way before we have any concern for ourselves. He, he is more concerned about our sin than we are. We're often not bothered by our sin and not bothered where our sin will lead us, but he is. And he's concerned to rescue us from it. The Lord is not one who helps those who help themselves. He's not looking for good, more, good raw material. He is seeking an opportunity to rescue those who don't even know that they're lost. The Lord cares more about the salvation of his people than we do. And what's true of God and Israel here is just as true of us uh, in the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to uh, Paul's reflections on our salvation in in Ephesians chapter 2. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, See that? He loved us even when we were totally dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. God cares about his people who are totally compromised uh, through their worldliness. That is the good use of the gospel. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So as we have Judges 14 and 15 held up in front of us and we slightly cringe because we're reminded of all the ways in which we so often compromise with the world. We have this great message of our rescuer, the Lord Jesus Christ, who rescues indifferent people. He rescues us when we're feeling spiritually very cold. He rescues us when we can't uh, bring ourselves to open our Bibles and pray. He is the Lord who was for us in the same way he was for his people who were slightly disastrous in uh, Judges 14 and 15. He is also for us. And at the end of the story, that's something that Samson confesses. He's had a great victory, but he's desperate in thirst. And so for the first time we read, he prays. Look at 18 and 19. You have granted this great salvation by the hand of your servant. And shall I now die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised? And God split open the hollow place that is at Lehi, and water came out from it. And when he drank, his spirit returned and he revived. Samson acknowledged that salvation was from the Lord, and that all things are from the Lord. So he prays for the Lord to revive him and sustain him. That's what he does. Uh, He receives water from the rock. That's an Old Testament picture of God sustaining his people, fulfilled, of course, in the Lord Jesus Christ, sustaining uh, their people day by day that's what it's a picture of and those god set he those those who god saves in christ he also sustains in christ day by day by day and that is the call of this passage the lord cares more about the salvation of his people than we do so let's take great joy in the salvation that we have in christ it is dependent entirely upon him not our zeal and so let us lean on him. Let us look to him to sustain us and revive us as he has promised that he will. Let's pray. Father in heaven, this is a very challenging passage. We see the weaknesses of your people and we reflect on our own weaknesses and failings. But we thank you that our hope is not in ourselves. We thank you that our hope is in your mercy and your love and your grace, how it abounds to your even indifferent, cold-hearted people. Have mercy on us, Lord, we pray. 
And we pray you would revive us uh, by your spirit. Would we feed on Christ in our hearts? Would you strengthen us that we might be those who are blown away again by your glory and therefore wholeheartedly want to live for you? In Jesus' name, amen.